There we are. Uh, Michelangelo's famous painting, The Creation of Adam. Uh, it's a fresco on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Uh, it shows uh, a representation of God reaching out to touch Adam and giving him life. It's a metaphor that shows something of what God is like, his character and how he acts. It doesn't, obviously, show what he looks like. Uh, And it's a much more intimate image of God than anything that had been painted before it in the West. Uh, God is represented as simply dressed. Uh, If you like, he's the God of Genesis chapter 2. He's accessible, he's interested, he's actively reaching out to humanity. He's a little different from the God of Genesis chapter 1 where uh, he's described as the all-powerful and the distant king who who speaks and things happen. But here we've got God reaching out to Adam. Uh, Compare the two of them. Uh, Notice how Adam matches the shape of God, sort of in uh, reverse. Uh, It's perhaps showing that he's made in God's image. But notice he's relaxed and indifferent compared to God. God is engaged and active. He's He's twisting around and reaching out to bridge the gap between us, uh, between Adam and himself. Even if you zoom in on those fingers, they're quite a well-known image as well. Uh, God's finger, it's firm and it's pointed. Adam's is sort of relaxed and floppy, like he doesn't really care about what God's doing for him. I think it's a powerful picture, not just of creation, but of God's whole relationship with humanity down through history from Genesis to Revelation, God is actively at work to undo the separation that uh, sin has caused, bridging the gap, connecting us back in. Uh, It's a picture but I think it's quite powerful and just like Michelangelo, the Bible is full of pictures that help us understand what God is doing in his world to join us to himself. I've counted at least 15. I'm sure there are more different pictures. We're not going to look at 15 today, but we're going to look at 10, which is still a fair amount. So I hope you, you, you can strap in and uh, get ready to, to, to do some serious work and pay some attention. 15, we're going to look at 10 different earthly metaphors that capture something of the spiritual reality of God being at work. Uh, Each one adds a a different emphasis. It shows God's work from a a different point of view. Uh, And God's given them so that we'll understand what he's doing and that we'll trust him and we'll reach out and connect to him. And and then we'll live out that trust in praise and obedience. So so that's the goal for today, that at the end of it, we'd see and appreciate more of what God's doing, that we we would rejoice and praise him and love him better. And maybe, if you're not yet a Christian, that you might see all of the benefits that God is doing for his children and that you'd want them as well. And you'll accept his invitation and come to him. Now, seven of the pictures, uh, at least, are in that uh, Ephesians 1 and 2 that Corrine read for us, and we'll get to those in a moment. But uh, some of the big ones come up quite early in the Bible. And the first one is uh, covenant, which is really a legal contract. Uh, and in the time, biblical times, it was often uh, a contract that was set up between a king and his subjects, or maybe between the king of a powerful country and the king of a weaker country. And the picture of the covenant helps us to trust God's promise. We can rely on it like we can rely on a contract. 
he won't change his commitment. At Genesis chapter 15, he makes a covenant with Abram when Abram is tempted not to trust his promise. Uh, in a vision, God tells Abram to cut some animals in half and to lay them out across a field, and you've got these dissected animals. Uh, and then we see in verse 17, uh, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. And you might think, what is going on there? Well, those animals cut in pieces was exactly what happened in the culture of the time when human covenants were made. Both parties would walk between the animals that had been split in two and as they walked through them, it symbolised the oath that was part of the covenant, may this happen to me, may I be split in two if I break this covenant. And here in this vision, we've got God represented by the smoke and the fire. God himself walks through the pieces. God is saying, I will keep my word, you can trust it. And it works uh, because Abram believes God. He takes him at his word. We're told back up in verse 6 of Genesis 15 that Abram believed the Lord. And then God says, uh, it says he credited, God credited uh, that faith to him as righteousness. And that's the second picture of what God is doing. Uh, it's the picture of justification to declare somebody righteous. It's a picture that's been borrowed from the law court. When a judge declares someone innocent, he delivers his verdict, not guilty, righteous. We say he justifies them. Now in this case, it's not because Abram is himself innocent, but because he trusts God. And the verse says that God credits that faith to his righteousness account. And that example with Abram is what God, the judge, does for every person who trusts him, whether it's in the Old or the New Testament. God declares them righteous, not because they're innocent, but because of their faith. No one earns their innocence. No one is good enough. But it's God's legal verdict of justification that counts. That gives us freedom. It gives us confidence and joy rather than being uncertain or fearful. We can rest knowing that we've been acquitted. Well, as we move through the history of Israel, there's one more picture that's really important to explain how God is actually able to acquit people, to declare them innocent. Because on its own, justification doesn't seem fair. It's not fair to let off guilty people. And so the picture God chooses to use to set into the religious structure of Israel is the idea of atonement. It's an image that's borrowed from the temple, from sacrifice. To atone for sin means to satisfy wrath, to satisfy wrath. And in the Old Testament, God sets up sacrifices that will do that. He graciously allows the death of an animal to satisfy his justice, rather than requiring the death of a sinner. So what would happen is the sinner would lay his hands on the animal 
uh, symbolically transferring the guilt of his sin onto that animal. And then the animal would die in the place of the sinner and God would choose to count his death, the death of the animal, as a satisfaction of his wrath, a satisfaction of his justice. But even that was only a picture because an animal, an animal could never stand in the place of a human being. God chose to accept animal sacrifices as a temporary measure, a stopgap, until the perfect sacrifice came, until Jesus came, the one who died in our place, truly, ultimately, satisfying God's justice once for all. The gory details of sacrifice and atonement, they emphasise home to us how serious our sin is. It's not a superficial matter that we've sinned against our Creator. It emphasises how holy God is. What a wonderful gift he's given us in his Son. When we think about atonement, our response is to offer ourselves as living sacrifices in response to the sacrifice of his Son. Living sacrifices holy and acceptable to him we're not treated as we deserve. And so we want to offer ourselves in response. Now, there are more pictures in the Old Testament we could pick, and uh, you might want to debate with me about ones that I missed out. But what we're going to do is jump over to the Ephesians passage. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. After a brief greeting, uh, Paul jumps straight into it in verse 3, where he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul begins by praising God because God blessed Christians in all sorts of ways. And then from verse 4, he spends the next couple of chapters listing all of those ways. Now, it's Father's Day today. Many of you uh, wrote a card for your dad. Maybe you thanked him for what he does. You may have even listed some of the things you appreciate. Well, that's what we've got here. It's a Father's Day card to our Heavenly Father, listing the things we appreciate about him, every spiritual blessing. Uh, The first of these is adoption. It's quite fitting on Father's Day uh, that we've been adopted by a Heavenly Father. Whoever is joined to his son is adopted into his family by becoming a son or daughter as well. Have a look at verse 5. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Uh, The picture of adoption, it helps us as children to approach our Heavenly Father confidently. He's the one who will listen to us and provide for us and protect us. He's our Father. He's adopted us as his children. We can be sure of it. Sometimes uh, we hear of adopted children who who doubt the love of their adoptive parents. But I really think the opposite's true. A couple who wants to adopt makes a conscious decision to love a child. There's a commitment. When you have a natural child, you have to love them, don't you? That, That just goes with the territory. You don't get a choice. But when you choose to adopt, that really shows your love, I think. And that's what God, our Heavenly Father, does. He's chosen. In love, he's predestined 
us to be adopted. It doesn't just affect our relationship with God, it affects our relationship with the brothers and sisters we have as well, this idea of adoption. We have a family all over the world. We have a family even in other denominations. We have brothers and sisters. Uh, that uh, we have a new family with new loyalties and new ways of behaving. That's adoption. Uh, the next picture, picture number five of how God's blessed us, comes in verse seven, uh, and it's uh, the picture of redemption. Verse seven says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Uh, redemption is to do with buying slaves out of slavery. Uh, in the culture, Someone had a debt, they couldn't pay it, they were enslaved by the one who they had the debt with. Uh, and so you could free a slave by paying off the debt. That might be you could work off your debt or someone else could come in and pay the debt for you. And after that, after the debt, the slave was free. Uh, God uses that image to describe how he's going to rescue Israel from slavery. Exodus 6.6, he says... I'm the Lord, I'll bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, I'll free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Uh, Pay a price to set you free. Now, in our case, we're not in Egypt, we're trapped instead in slavery to sin and death. Uh, Verse 7 there uh, in Ephesians 1 uh, it says that Jesus paid for our freedom with his blood. That was the price that he paid. Uh, the chains of sin and death have been broken because of the blood of Jesus that was paid to free us. And we've been released instead to serve him in freedom. Uh, Romans 6.18 emphasises this uh, slavery to freedom and, and says you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Uh, It's an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, You've been freed from one type of slavery and you've been freed into another type of slavery, slavery to righteousness, Uh, set free to do good by serving another master. That's the picture of redemption. Uh, Picture number six uh, is also in verse seven and that's that of forgiveness. So verse seven says, "'In him we have redemption through his blood.'" Another way of saying that, the forgiveness of sins. The idea of forgiveness, it's a picture that is about wiping out debt. It's about overlooking an offence. Wiping the slate clean, returning the debtor's ledger to zero, reformatting the hard drive. Completely starting again. Forgiveness is costly. The forgiver chooses to bear the cost for the sake of the person being forgiven. It may be a financial cost. It may be a personal hurt, an offence that's been forgiven that has to be absorbed. Forgiveness is a choice not to get even. The idea of forgiveness helps us appreciate that we have a clean slate before God, a fresh start. There's nothing in our past that God holds against us We're new creatures with no reason for guilt. And when we truly understand God's forgiveness, we're able to give forgiveness. We're able to genuinely forgive others because we know we've been forgiven a far greater debt than what anyone would commit against us. 
Knowing God's forgiveness of us helps us forgive others. Well, image number seven, uh, it's down in verse 13 of Ephesians 1. We've been united with Christ. Uh, Verse 13 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Uh, God joins us to Jesus when we trust him. And then we receive everything that belongs to Jesus because he stands in our place and we're connected to him. He is our representative. One of the ways of thinking about it is it's like when our representative sporting teams play and when they win, we win. The whole nation wins when our representative wins. It's the same with Jesus. He wins, he defeats sin and death. He's our representative. Because we're joined to him, we too receive those benefits. He's righteous before God because of a perfect life. And so are we. We are judged as having a perfect life because we're joined to the one who lived a perfect life. If we've actually been reading Ephesians 1 and 2 carefully, we would have seen it already in this passage. Again and again, all the blessings that we have come because we're in Christ. They all come because we're in Christ. In fact, if I had to choose one of these 10 or 15 pictures that were most important, that was sort of foundational, I reckon this would be the one I'd pick. Uh, all the others depend on it. Uh, all the rest flow from them, uh, from this. That's what he says in verse 3. Every spiritual blessing is in Christ. It's found in him. And we receive it because we're in him. Uh, So verse 4 and 11 said God chose us in Christ. Verse 6, he's given us his grace in the one he loves. Verse 7, we have redemption in him. Uh, Verse 22 and 23 sort of talk about Jesus being the head and the church being the body. Uh, We're connected to Jesus. He guides, he gives life, he leads... Verse 23 says, he's with us and he fills us with the fullness of his presence. That's sort of connected with this idea of Jesus being in us or or we're in him. If we jump down into chapter 2, verse 5, we read that God seats us with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is seated in heaven... We are there too because he's our representative. I think the idea of that is that heaven is our true home. Heaven is where our identity is. Heaven is where our loyalty is to be found. It's not to be found here. We're seated in Christ because we're in him. Uh, We're sorry, we're seated in heaven because we're in Christ. Number seven. Uh, Number eight, the next picture, it's also there in verse 13. uh, And it also comes because we're in Christ. Uh, We're marked with a seal. Uh, Have a look there at verse 13. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. What's a seal? Well, a seal is a mark of authenticity on your university degree on the land title, uh, showing that it's real. Uh, Letters from one person to another used to be sealed in wax with 
the official emblem to show who had sent them. Uh, It's a mark of authenticity. When God makes us his children, he puts his stamp of ownership on us, his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit says, this one is mine. This one is mine. We know something of God's presence now, but his spirit is a deposit that says there's more to come. This is a taste, there's more to come. When someone puts a holding deposit on a car or a house, it's a commitment that that thing belongs to them and then the rest of the money is coming soon. The rest of the money is coming soon. So God's seal, the idea of God's seal, gives us confidence and courage knowing whose we are. We belong to him. Number nine, we've been made alive. Uh, we can jump over the Paul's wonderful prayer in verses 15 to 23 and into the chapter, five, into chapter 2, uh, we come to the next picture. Chapter 2, verse 5. We were made alive. God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. The start of the chapter describes what it means to be dead in transgressions. Uh, Following the ways of the world, gratifying our cravings, we were objects of wrath. We were physically alive, but spiritually dead. We were separated from God, who's the source of life. We were headed for judgment. That's what it means to be dead. And dead people, well, they're helpless, aren't they? They can't do anything. Have you ever seen a dead person jump up and perform CPR on themselves? It's just impossible. This image of being made alive emphasises our helplessness before God. He makes us alive with Christ. Jesus is the author of life. God raised Jesus from the dead, joins us to him, and so we are made alive. We enjoy the benefits of his life. This idea of being made alive, it emphasises the newness of our experience. There's a joy and a freshness and a purpose in the life for the Christian. There's a hope that we have, that we didn't have before. Uh, That's what it means to be made alive. Well, the last picture, it's uh, there in verse 5 as well. Uh, Salvation, or perhaps the word we would use mostly these days, is rescue. Verse 5 says, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. The Old Testament talks about God as saviour, thinking mostly about earthly danger, I'd argue, uh, saving us from sickness or enemies or maybe physical harm. But it's his judgment we most need rescuing from. Uh, We were headed for death because of our transgressions. We deserve death, but God, this verse tells us, shows us mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He shows us grace, which is the flip side of mercy. He gives us something we don't deserve. He rescues. This picture of salvation, it emphasises our helplessness. God is holding the life preserver out to us. We're floundering around in the water. We're sinking. Without the life preserver, we're dead. We reach out to it, our only hope in faith, and we grab it. 
down in verse 8, it, it says that even our faith comes from God. We are thoroughly helpless. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this faith, it's not from yourselves either. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. God's rescue, this picture of salvation, emphasises that it's all of him, that it's nothing to do with us. And as we think about it, we're humbled, we're grateful. Uh, All grounds for boasting are removed. Well, I'm going to stop there. I'm tempted to keep going. If we look in the next paragraph before the end of chapter 2, there's actually four more. So uh, if if you want, you can see if you can identify four more pictures which would bring it up to 14, and there's even more. Uh, So what we're going to do to finish, though, is think about our response to all of this. How do we respond to all of these pictures of what God's done? Well, firstly, if God is reaching out to us, like that picture of the creation of Adam, the obvious response is to grab hold of him. Verse 13 describes what that's about. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. God himself is speaking to you a true word about Jesus. It may be through the Bible that you read. It might be through someone telling you about how you can be saved. Your response is to hear it and to believe it, to to trust the message, and then to live that out in obedience. For those of us who are Christians, we could add that obedience looks like partnering with God and speaking the word of truth to other people so that they can hear and believe and be saved. Hear and believe. Have you done that yet? God is reaching out to you. If you haven't, today is a great day to do that. Many of us have. Uh, If you have, then the the second way that we can respond to these images of what God has done is to praise him for them. Uh, Paul begins that way in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Uh, To praise God at the very least, it means giving God honour and glory and thanks with our words with our prayers, with our songs, with our conversations with one another as we speak about God. But if God has done so much for us, then then words are hardly enough. God deserves more. In fact, God expects more. Verse 12, we see God's plan for us. We were also chosen in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. That's your whole life. God wants everything. He doesn't just want your words. He doesn't just want your Sunday mornings or your work or your money. He wants you to be for the praise of his glory, to exist for the praise of his glory. He doesn't just want your mouth, he wants your head and your heart and your hands giving everything back to the God who's given everything to you. Be for the praise of his glory. 
Well, lastly, our third response is to do good works. Down in chapter 2, verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you notice three times work is mentioned? Uh, We are the result of God's work. He's chosen us, saved us, forgiven us, changing us. And his purpose in doing work is that we would work, uh, that we would do the good works he's prepared for us. That the prepared work, it's another work word, that we would, uh, we're not doing the things that we would choose, we're actually doing the, the things that he has pre-worked for us. And notice that we're not saved by the good things that we do, uh, we're saved for good works, to do good works. Our good works are to be for the praise of his glory. The good works that we do are the fruit of a life that is for the praise of his glory. We do works of grace and generosity and mercy that point to God's grace and generosity and mercy. We do works of love and forgiveness and rescue that point to God's love and forgiveness and rescue. We're to do works of truth and justice and life that point to God's truth and justice and life. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be for the praise of your glory. Amen.